Good morning. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. We have a lot to be thankful for as a church, don't we? What are some of the things you guys are thankful for this morning? Church, men's group, men's group being canceled? Seriously, David? Come on, man. We're going to have to have a talk. What are you guys thankful for? At our church up in Bloomington, we'd have this whole uh, Wednesday night Thanksgiving service thing that we would do. It was the closest thing that you've ever seen to like reform people uh, being Pentecostal. It wasn't very Pentecostal, it was just we had an open mic night. And there was always like just enough cringe that the next day the pastors would be like, yeah, I don't think we ever want to do this again. And then we do it again the next year. What are you thankful for? The ark? Is that what I heard? Or was it art? Like the existence of art? I have no idea what he's saying. Uh, The ark. Okay, cool. One thing I'm thankful for, how many of you guys noticed some random person up here that you've never seen before? Yeah? Yeah. His name's Joe. Uh, He's uh, uh, my best friend from high school. Uh, We didn't start that way. Um, We were the kinds of people that were just the exact opposite in high school. Uh, For three years, we were not the kinds of people that would ever be friends. One of us was very tall and very handsome, very good looking, got all the girls, was very athletic, everybody liked him, was popular. I've got the microphone. And the other was me, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Thanks, Ryan. Joe and I became friends because my senior year of high school or going into it, I became a Christian. I was just becoming a Christian. I went into a hardware store looking for a job, and Joe was working, and he invited me to go to a a blues festival sort of out of the blue that night. And I said, yes, out of the blue. And uh, we hit off our friendship, and that's one of those relationships that you have that God gives you early on in your life where you just walk through a lot together as a young Christian, as a young believer. And so that's who Joe is to me. And we always talked about, like he ended up in ministry for a long time. He's not anymore. He ended up in ministry for a long time in Nashville and Maryland and South Carolina. And I ended up in Bloomington. And we always talked about coming back here to plant a church and to work together. And uh, that's not what's happened, but it was really sweet this morning uh, that Joe got to serve us uh, with his musical gifts Um, So I'm really thankful for that. That's really cool, the way that God does that sort of thing. Apart from food and football, there are two things that we love to mix together on Thanksgiving. Anybody have, like, Thanksgiving dinners left at all? Anybody? All right. This is your your morning. I'm going to give you all that you need because what we love to mix at Thanksgiving is religion and politics. And that's what we got this morning, because we are still in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 13, and so we're talking politics. Everybody excited about that? Why are we talking politics? Because that's just what's up in the book of Romans. We like to work through books of the Bible verse by verse. So today, we're talking about the Christian's relationship with the government. So if you're a Christian, you belong to God and you have a king, and his name is Jesus. He is our highest and ultimate authority. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, but we still have to live in this world. So how does that impact our relationship with the authorities that God has put in our lives? That's sort of the question we're asking this morning, especially the government that God places over us. 
Okay, this passage this morning is the key place in the whole New Testament for that. It's Romans chapter 13, and we're going to get right into it, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, so we've spent a lot of time now, the last several weeks, talking about our relationships with one another, right? Romans 1 to 11, us and God. Romans 12 and on, us and each other, right? One of the realities we have to deal with in our relationships with one another is that a lot of our relationships actually have a hierarchy to them. There's authority that exists in our relationships, And that sort of changes the way that we interact with one another. And that's something the Bible addresses too. Parents have authority over kids. So there's a way that parents are to interact with their kids based on that authority and the way that kids are to respond to their parents based on that authority. Right? Bosses have authority over their employees. Governments have authority over their citizens. That's all good. It's all from God. It's related to how he made the world. It's baked in. God himself is our ultimate authority. The Bible says that God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And what that means is that the reality is that every authority in our lives bears the image of God's fatherhood. Every authority, no matter what it is, because authority is designated by God. It's instituted by God. It's set apart by God to exercise his good and fatherly authority over our lives in a beneficial way, in a way that's good and healthy and sweet. So if you're a husband, if you're a mom, if you're a pastor, if you're a dad, if you're an elder, if you're a teacher, if you're a boss, if you're a mayor, a governor, a president, if you're an emperor, you are an authority that bears the image of God's authority over the world. And you're set apart by God to bear the image of God's fatherhood. God designed those authorities to govern with greater authority from the inside out. And so here's what I mean by that. Uh, In our world... Who would you say carries the most authority over someone's life? If you just like pick sort of like institutionally, who has the most authority anywhere? In our lives. So we got the president, okay? Let me ask it a different way. Because we all, I think, probably think the government or something like that, right? What's the highest authority in the land? Okay, okay, we got God over here, and we're just going to top everything off, okay? But here's the question. Did the government tell you what to wear today? No. Somebody says maybe. <laughs> okay. Did the government tell you what to eat today? No. No. By God's design, the greatest authority in our lives is actually the closest to us. It's the authority that we have over ourselves, And then it's the authority of parents over children. And the smaller the child, the greater the authority that they have to speak into every little detail of their lives, right? Infants don't have a lot of autonomy. Don't have a lot of say. Mom and dad have the say. That child in the basket right there goes wherever mom or dad takes the basket. Eats whatever mom or dad puts in his mouth. Wears whatever mom or dad puts on. As a parent, you have authority over the clothes your, clothes your kids wear, the food they eat. And you can be a good authority or you can be a real tyrant. But your authority is so great, and that's tied by God's design to your natural loving relationship to the child, to the one under your authority. Okay? And the need there is the greatest. 
Okay, that's again by God's design. So even when it comes to dispensing justice or discipline, in the home, you can decide what's appropriate for each kid based on his personality, based on uh, his particular sins or temptations. You can suit the discipline not just to the offense, but to the offender. And that can be a recipe in homes. We know that there are parents that show partiality and show favoritism. But in the hands of loving parents who just see their kids, each one of them, that's a really good thing because they know every child best and nobody knows better than them, okay? So mom or dad, it may not feel like you have the authority to tell your kid that he has to wear pants, especially if they're under four or if their name is Zach got a spit take over here. But you do. You do. You can tell Zach he has to wear pants in the house and he has to wear pants in the house. It's the kind of thing that you can do. Did you know you can do that? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> and that's the thing that drives me nuts. Shorts to school in the winter and hoodies in the middle of July and August. What in the world is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. As parents, it's our duty to exercise authority over our kids in a way that shows them the fatherhood of God, right? So as our kids age up, we continue to take a step back, to take a step back and to take a step back. Why? Because we're teaching and training them not to be dictated to, but to govern themselves, to lead themselves, to exercise self-control so that when we send them out into the world to exercise dominion and start families and businesses and make a life for themselves, they're prepared. Teaches them not only to respect God's authority in life wherever they see it, but to be good authorities themselves, wherever God's given them the dignity and responsibility and privilege of leading others and exercising authority. A big part of how we equip our kids to be good husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and elders and pastors and bosses and employees and teachers, and coaches, and civil servants, and all the other authorities you can think of, is how we teach them to be under authority in our homes, and to become good at governing themselves, exercising self-control, and submitting to our leadership. Because good authority starts with being good under authority, and with learning to govern yourself before God. Okay? Now, when we take a step out from there, in a certain sense, you have a little less far-reaching authority. You just move from the first line of defense to the next line of defense. So you have these things called mediating institutions, and uh, the mediating institutions in our lives are what? Schools and churches, things like that. And it used to be just the church. Churches are designed by God to also have real authority. Mom and dad can decide that you have to wear khakis to the concert that you're going to or that you're going to eat whatever grandma cooks at Thanksgiving dinner, whether or not you like stuffing. Okay? The church doesn't speak to the clothes you wear, the food you eat, unless it's a matter of morality, right? We don't care if you wear khakis to the concert. Oh, we do care that you're modest in how you dress. Okay? With food, we might be concerned about gluttony, but not whether or not you eat the stuffing at Thanksgiving dinner. Okay? The details aren't our concern, that's not the issue. We don't have the right or the responsibility to speak to that sort of thing in the church. 
We're just sort of a next line of of defense. And the power of the church is the power of speaking God's word about what he requires of us morally. Our tools are the ability to persuade the right use of church discipline. In scripture, that's called the power of the keys. That's why when it comes time for a church to have elders and deacons, and we're close, we have to be very wise in who we select. It has to be people that we trust. Okay, so you've got the home, you've got the church. Now what about the government? Well, with the government, authority is meant to be even less far-reaching in scope. Now, the power wielded by the government is more final, but less far-reaching in scope. Governments exist as intended by God to protect its citizens from threats of injustice, both externally from outside the borders of our nation and internally from those who would commit not sins, but crimes, attacks on the person or property of anyone citizen. And the government has the power and the authority to intervene in those situations with deadly force. Now, we live in 21st century America, and we don't just live in 21st century America, we live in 21st century middle America, and we've all lived through 2020, right? Who feels like the relationship with the governing authorities has been pushed about as far as you're happy to have it pushed? Who feels like they've had enough top-down, destructive, intrusive micromanagement? of their lives. Okay. Okay, here's the truth though, and this is where we need to be careful. And we do need to be careful. Because what's the default state of human nature? What's the default state of the human heart? It's rebellion. It's rebellion. And so when we look at the world and we feel frustrated because things aren't how they should be, here's what we have to realize. That's true. Things are not how they should be. They never have been. But oftentimes our impulse to rebel is just a different way of repaying evil for evil, like we talked about last week. And that's not a solution. That's the next layer of a problem. So the impulse to rebel is something that we need to temper and fight against because we have to realize and understand that the governing authorities are instituted by God as God's servants for our good. Our first disposition as Christians, as good Christian men and women, has to be to be good citizens who have a basic respect for the rule of law and those God has placed over us to enforce it. Even if we don't believe the people who hold that office are especially honorable, it's our duty to respect the office because it's instituted by God. Okay, does that mean we submit to every single thing the government tells us to do? No, of course not. We have examples of civil disobedience throughout Scripture, the Old and the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this, was often thrown into prison because he was out preaching the gospel. And they would throw him in prison and tell him not to preach anymore, not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. And then he would get released, and then he'd go right back to what he was doing. And we see that throughout the New Testament. If Jesus had shut up, he wouldn't have been crucified. Jesus wasn't going to shut up, so he was crucified by the civil authorities together with the religious authorities, the church and the state together. The apostles, the gospel wouldn't be where it was if there was not civil disobedience, okay? 
Anytime our government is against our God, God wins. And it's the love of God in Jesus that frees us and gives us courage to face that. Okay, that's Romans 8 again that we've spent a lot of time talking about. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Who are doing these things? Often it's going to be the government or the governing authorities. Or or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Part of the point of being shored up by the love of God for us is the ability to stand in the face of the highest power in the land and say, no, we will worship God rather than men. We will obey God rather than men, period. What does it mean for us? It means that there's a difference between having an attitude of respect and deference to authority and submitting to that authority wherever possible and submitting ourselves to any attempt to coerce us to defy our God. Those are two different questions. Sometimes those questions can be more clear than others. Again, in the book of Acts, they beat Peter and John, they throw them in prison, they say, never speak again about Jesus. And they say, we'll obey God rather than man. Sorry. You're going to have to kill us to stop us. In China, it's illegal for Christians to gather in churches that aren't state-approved. So the true church in China is underground. That's a good thing. Okay? Those things are more clear, right? There are other things that are less clear. But before we talk about that, I want to step back and ask a question. What's the book that we are reading? What's it called? Romans. Context matters. If you think our context is bad, let's step back and consider the context that this was written. Okay? This is written to the church at Rome. The church at Rome. The capital seat of the Roman Empire. And more than that, we know that in the church at Rome, there were members at some point of Caesar's own household. And the reason we know that is because a couple years ago, we studied the book of Philippians. And if you weren't here for that, you can go back and listen to it. It's all online. But we get to the end of the book of Philippians. Paul, writing from prison in Rome, in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel, sends greetings to Philippi from members of Caesar's own household. Okay, so here is the church at Rome, presumably with members of Caesar's own household in it, and this is what Paul is saying to them. These authorities are instituted by God. Caesar is put in place by God. Now, it's a good thing that Caesar at this time was a really godly, awesome dude, right? What was his name? Do you know? It was Nero. It was Nero. Do you know anything about Nero? He was insane. The name Nero is synonymous with depravity. I kept trying to like, think about how to talk about the kinds of things that we know about Nero, and I can't. I can't talk about them from the pulpit. You can go read about them. Everything that you have heard or thought or imagined 
Every dark web conspiracy theory about Epstein Island and our politicians, Nero did that stuff in broad daylight all the time. Read about his garden parties. The man was perverse. He was evil, and he hated Jesus, and he persecuted Christians. And Nero, in Hebrew, Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet has numerical value. Nero, in Hebrew, do you know the numerical value for Nero? 666. That doesn't tell you what the early church thought about Nero. He was a Jesus-hating monster who persecuted Christians. That's who he was. And not just persecuted, tortured. And he had members, apparently, of his own household who were Christians, who were put there by God to effect some kind of good. And this is the context that Paul is writing Okay, so with that context, let's keep reading. Therefore, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, so let me ask this. Why do we need government? Because sin exists, because evil exists, because people are evil and cruel, and we need people set apart to maintain and uphold the justice of God. And that is the duty of the civil authorities in this life. They exist to restrain and punish evil. The church doesn't exist to restrain and punish evil that's not our job. Our job is to promote what is good. Okay? Our job is to deal on the level of the heart. And yeah, how that heart plays out in action. Right? But we don't deal with crimes. That's the place of the government. Crimes are where the church's jurisdiction ends and the civil authorities begins. God wants the church to transform people from the inside out. God wants the civil authorities to step in and protect and preserve the lives and property of its people and to punish those who would wrongfully take it. To that end, he's given the civil authorities what the Bible calls the power of the sword. The sword represents the lawful, just taking of human life, the lawful use of deadly force, which is to say there is such a thing as the lawful use of deadly force. It's not the same thing as murder. Murder is the taking of an innocent life. And the Bible draws a distinction between the two. So on the one hand, there's murder. On the other hand, you have the lawful use of deadly force. And there are three categories for that lawful use of deadly force. The first is in defense of innocent human life. The second is just war. And the third is capital punishment. Okay, the taking of human life under those terms is biblically justified and warranted. Christians aren't pacifists. First, the defense of innocent life. That's when in order to preserve innocent life, including your own, you stand between the threat and the innocent. And under such circumstances, it can sometimes be lawful to stop that for, or threat using deadly force. 
In fact, sometimes, I would go farther, it would be mandated to stop that threat using deadly force. The sixth commandment does not just forbid us from taking human life. It requires us to protect and preserve innocent life whenever and however possible. And here's all I mean by that. Dads, if someone comes at your family, you're never more a Christian man than when you step in between the threat to your family and your family. And when you do what it takes to stop the threat. It's our Christian duty to protect and preserve the lives of the innocent. Okay? That level of decision can fall to the individuals and they can fall to law enforcement and they're always difficult decisions. It has to be necessary. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Not every legitimate threat justifies lethal force. You have to examine the law. You have to exhaust your options. You have to assess the situation. You have to make a decision. And there are always people who are looking for an opportunity or an excuse to use deadly force. There always will be. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm simply talking about being willing to step in between the threat and the innocent and doing what you can to prepare for such a moment. Being willing to do what it takes. Outdo one another in showing honor is what the Bible called us to last week. Those of us who are strong are to use our strength to protect the weak and the vulnerable and the innocent, and that is how we show honor. I'd like to think that if a threat came through that door, the men of this church would move to the threat to protect the innocent and the weak and the vulnerable. And that's why we honor such men, and that's why we honor law enforcement, and that's why we honor firefighters and soldiers. We honor those who put themselves in harm's way for the good of others. Okay? It's protecting and defending the lives of the innocent than just war. Okay? Not only can individuals protect themselves, but a nation can protect itself. And there's a lot that can be said about just war theory. There's hundreds and thousands of years of philosophy and theology about this sort of thing. You can go study it if you want. But the basic principle is that a just war is basically defensive and proportional to the threat. In other words, a nation does not have the divine right to go conquer other sovereign nations, but it does have the right to defend itself and its people. And it has the right to do so in proportion to the threat, only when other means have been exhausted. Okay, so you can't be looking around you for anything to interpret as a threat or a provocation and be ready to press the buttons on the nukes. If Mexico tries to take California, we don't launch the nukes. What do we do? We throw a party, we celebrate. We ask them if they want Portland too, and if they'll please take Seattle. We don't launch the nukes. If they come after New Mexico and Arizona, we send in the troops. If they come after Texas, we pop some popcorn, and we just watch and see what happens. Maybe we send a memo to Texas and say, you got to fight with one hand tied behind your back. It's got to be proportional. That's the point, right? There's a lot more that can be said about just war theory. The stuff is hundreds of years old. Civilians are not to be targeted in a just war. Carpet bombing is not just war. Nuclear bombs that don't discriminate between soldier and civilian. 
not a just use of force. Viability is crucial. You have to actually be able to justifiably assess whether or not the benefits outweigh the costs. All that sort of thing. You can go read about it, study it, debate about it. Defense of innocent life, just war, capital punishment. Capital punishment's really simple. Once you've crossed certain lines, there's no going back. You can't be trusted in a just society, and so the civil authorities acting on God's behalf remove the threat. It's something that culturally we used to understand much better. There are certain crimes that are capital. They don't prevent you from receiving the grace and mercy of God or God's forgiveness, but the consequences of those crimes do require your life. It's one part justice, it's one part deterrent, and it's one part protection of society and of the offender, actually. It's justice because it's a punishment adequate to fit the crime. It images the perfect justice of God. It deters us from devolving into anarchy, a society built on vengeance and ever-escalating blood vendettas. Because when we're hurt, what do we do? We hurt back harder. And the law is meant to be impartial and just, dispassionate, to take the sword out of our hands because he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's also a deterrent against further crime. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Some crimes are so heinous that they cannot be tolerated. In fear of intolerant consequences, fear of death, it's a pretty good deterrent. If you know that the crime carries the weight of death, you might think twice before committing it. And it's also a protection both to society and to the offender. By removing the offender and his ability to offend. Once you cross certain lines morally, once you fall into such a level of moral degradation, it can be very, very hard to come back. We like to think that we can rehabilitate people and throw them in prison for uh, life sentences as if that's a just punishment. And the Bible says, once you've taken innocent life and crossed that line, you're not a safe person. It's hard to come back from that sort of thing. Once you've crossed certain lines sexually, it's hard to come back from that. You're a threat to innocent people and to your own soul. So the merciful and just thing to do is to remove the threat. And here's the point. God works through authorities he's established and endowed with the stamp of his fatherhood to protect the innocent and the weak and the vulnerable because evil is real. So fathers exist to protect their household, church fathers exist to protect the churches, city fathers and civil authorities exist to protect their cities or their nations from internal threats and external threats. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, that's the way it's supposed to work. But Jake, what if we live under tyrants who want to murder our babies and mutilate our kids and prevent us from gathering for worship? Evil rulers are their own judgment. Our first response is not rebellion, but repentance. 
and calling our neighbors to repentance and calling our nation to repentance and calling our rulers to repentance. We don't honor God by knee-jerk reacting to the authorities put over us, but by recognizing what he's doing and why and repenting of our sin and calling those in authority to exact God's standards of justice, God's standards, not their own, to work for good and not for evil. They're meant to be God's servants for our good. Does that mean we never resist? No, of course not. But we have to be careful. Because Scripture says, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Defiance of authority in general is defiance of God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. So guard your conscience. Protect yourself against God's judgment. Submit where you can. Resist where you must. How far down does that go? How far down does it go? It can feel pretty fair, unfair and unjust. Well, I think that the next couple of verses make the point of how far down it goes. Because he's going to go straight past our moral indignation to our pocketbooks. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, there's a lot we can say about taxes and tax structure. We all know why taxes exist on the most basic and fundamental level, right? Government is not a business. It does not produce revenue. It's a service. It demands money from its citizens. And as long as there have been governments who have the sword, there have been governments who take from the people at the hand of the sword. There have been taxes and governments that hold the sword at the throats of its own people and demand more money than is required to operate. There have always been middlemen and people who line their pockets off the backs of the people it's always been that way. Who are the most hated people in the, in the time of Jesus? The tax collectors. The tax collectors. Everyone knew they were just defrauding everyone and robbing people in broad daylight. Everybody knew that. And now we live in a post-Marx and Engels world where we've discovered that we can just vote other people's money into our own pockets. The levels and layers of corruption and injustice have increased. And we've learned that we don't need a currency backed by any type of resource we just print money. And then that's another way to tax people by devaluing what they have. It's called inflation. All that is true. And the Roman Empire had its own version of many of those things. And yet Jesus paid his taxes and called us to pay our taxes. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And Paul says, just pay the taxes. I know what it's funding. I know what Nero is doing with your tax dollars. I know about his orgies and his garden parties and his murderous. I'm going to start saying things I shouldn't say. But he's Caesar. Pay him what he requires and trust God to pay him back. There are things our taxes pay for that we like, maybe. 
There are things that our taxes pay for that we don't like. And there are things that our taxes pay for that we hate because God hates them. Like public education. It's a joke, sort of. But here we are. Our government is constantly requiring more of our money to do what God hates. And it's always been that way. Meanwhile, here's God. His tax rate, his tithe is really simple. It's flat. Flat rate, 10% across the board. First fruits of everything you have. And here's what God says. Give everyone what they're owed. Pay your taxes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. And then watch God outperform his 10%. Okay, so here we are. We're in Romans 13. We're telling the church of Washington, D.C., right? Including those who live in the White House and members of Biden's own family to submit to the governing authorities. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, but tell me about the exceptions. And here's the amazing thing about Paul in that context. He doesn't give any. He, doesn't, he actually doesn't give any exceptions. Are there exceptions when we look at the whole of Scripture? Yeah, there are. There are. Are there examples of civil disobedience? Yeah, of course there are. We can just like, go through the Old Testament, right? Book of Exodus. Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives to strangle the boys when they're born so that all the boys are stillborn. They refuse to do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow to the idol. They get thrown into the fire, and God protects and preserves them. Daniel refuses to stop praying to God. They get thrown into the lion's den. In the New Testament, the apostles don't stop preaching the gospel. They won't stop preaching in Jesus' name. They get thrown in prison. They get beaten with rods and stoned and left for dead and executed. And the principle is really simple. And there are actually two. But they're not simplistic. They don't allow us to sit in judgment on the authorities God's placed over us. But it's really simple. When an authority commands you to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands, you resist. You obey God rather than men. But you have to make those judgments from a fundamental respect for the authority that God has established. And you must weigh the evil of rebellion against the evil that's before you. Because at that point, you're caught between two evils. And our default position is to pretend like rebellion is not an evil because authority is meaningless. And his whole point is authority is not meaningless. Authority is from God. There's a time to choose the lesser of two evils. But you have to understand there's rebellion against authority and then there's the other thing. Authority's from God. So you'd better be fully justified in disobeying or God will hold you to account. And that's perfectly underscored by the fact that Jesus paid his taxes and the Bible commands us to pay our taxes because we know that where there's government and money, there is corruption, period. There just is, and there always has been, and there always will be. We know that. We know that those tax dollars are going to be put to evil use. We know that. God said, and Jesus knew that, and Jesus paid his taxes. And Paul knew that, and Paul says, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes, leave it in God's hands. Honoring authority matters that much. Sometimes civil disobedience is just a cover for a rebellious spirit. And what's amazing is we've all watched that. We've all seen it play out. 
our government encourages some forms of rebellion. It does so to achieve evil ends, right? That's why rioting and looting can be framed as mostly peaceful protesting. And genuinely peaceful protesting can be framed as insurrection, rioting. And as in all times, we must be wiser than serpents and innocent as doves. We must deal with our own frustrations and fears and anxieties and rebellious spirits before God. And we have to be willing to discern when and how we must obey God rather than men, because we must obey God rather than men. The government is evil. The government said it, so it's wrong, and I'm not going to do it. That's not Christian behavior. At the same time, the government is evil. If the government said it, it's probably wrong. I need to submit as far as I can and be prepared to disobey when I must. Now, those can look very similar, but they're not the same thing. The difference is the disposition of the heart towards God and the authorities that he's established, not because they're intrinsically good, not because they're trustworthy, but because they bear the image of God. And they've been instituted by him for his own good purposes. Remember how Romans 12 frames this whole section in. Our nation is being increasingly polarized, but we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We're not to be sucked in. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's not to say that puts us in some kind of centrist or neutral position. It doesn't mean that we're apolitical. Jesus is king. Jesus is our king. He demands that all nations and authorities and rulers and people submit to him, period. End of discussion. We're team Jesus. Jesus is at war with the principalities and powers of this godless world, period. What it is to say is that we remember that we are citizens first of the kingdom of God. Our first allegiance is to our king and not to the flag, and that makes us, in the end, better citizens of this country, better patriots, even though it's not often seen that way. We've still got it pretty good, but our country is under attack, and our faith and our freedom to live peaceably and to worship freely and to speak openly about God and his truth and to quietly pursue life, liberty, and happiness for our families and for our children and our grandchildren is threatened. And we have an obligation as citizens of this country to uphold God's law and the rule of law wherever and however we can. That means we ought to be finding ways to intervene however we can. Right here and now in our own community, we need Christian lawyers and politicians and law enforcement officers. And maybe God has called you or is calling some of you and some of you will serve in some of those ways. Christian school board members. But it starts here in our own hearts, in our own homes, with our families and with our church. So if your heart is inclined to rebellion, and to hate authority. You're wrong. God's a God of authority. All authority bears his image and likeness. Your first orientation must be to honor the authorities that God has placed over you. And when that's your first orientation, then you can begin to consider when and how to affect change. Because to be a good authority, you must first be good under authority. You don't get to skip the process. Honor God and honor the authorities he's placed in your lives, whether they're your parents or your boss, the civil authorities. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed in your mind. 
When you see authorities in this world, see the image of God that those authorities bear to honor and respect God. Grow in responsibility and in leadership and trust and dignity in real life. In community with one another. And then we'll have some clarity about when and how to honor and respect the authorities God's placed over us and when and how to defy them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it challenges us and pushes up against us. I pray that you would give us humble hearts and teach us to see your fatherhood everywhere that you've placed it and to honor it. And that you would give us wisdom for evil days. In Jesus' name, amen.